John chapter 4, verses 20, uh, 16 to 26. John chapter 4, verses 16 to 26. You guys might remember if you've watched the musical Hamilton. Yeah, great, great musical. The song, The Room Where It Happens, right? Do you remember that one? Do you remember who that song was about? So James Madison, Jefferson, and, and Hamilton. And what was the, the debate that was going on in the room where it happens? You remember what was being talked over? Anybody? Huh? Yes, the capital and? Yes. And does anyone know what that's called? What that event was called? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Anybody know what that was called? That that moment? Any history buffs? No? John, were you around? <laughs> it was called the Compromise of No? Oh man, the Compromise of 1790. The Compromise of 1790, people. My goodness. Did I know that before? Yes, I did, actually, Zorabel. The Compromise of 1790, right? So that song, The Rumor Happens, is about this event, this actual historical event, where you had Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison in this locked debate, right? And so, like Johnny said, Hamilton was trying to get national debt to be Taken, uh, banking to be taken off, taken by uh, the nation. And the Southerners, the South, did not like this in part because they had already paid most of their debt off from the Revolutionary War. So they said, we don't want to pay more debt. But a compromise was reached when Hamilton said, okay, well, if you will allow the nation to take on debt, then we will move the capital to where? Not Philly. It wasn't Philly. D.C. Yes, to, to D.C. So in this compromise, they moved the capital of the nation to D.C. And the thinking, therefore, the Southerners was that this would allow them to have more influence um, over the states. And so that's why they were willing to give up this, what they felt like, a small loss in the debt to moving the capital to D.C., now, this is a perceived great victory for the South because, again, there's significance in capitals, right? We, we understand this. In every country where there is a government, there is a capital which acts as the backbone of a country. They're the centers for things like trade, communication, and all other kinds of things. Every country has one, and often in countries like ours, our states will have a capital as well. But this is also the case for religion. A lot of faiths will have a place, a center of their faith that is a physical location that you go to. Right? Do you know what this is for the Catholics? Vatican. Vatican what? City. Yes, Vatican City. Uh, in Islam, do you know what this is? 
Mecca. What about Hinduism? I didn't know this one before. <laughs> no? It's called the Varnarsi. Varnarsi? Yes, yes. And for the Jews, do you know what this is? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. But what about for the Christian? Heaven. Well, hallelujah? <laughs> Say hallelujah. <laughs> That's good. What is the center for our faith? Yeah, Jesus. So it's interesting because for the Christian faith, our, our center does not lie in a physical location, but a person. But this is a question that will be raised with the woman at the well, one that she will bring up actually in a dispute that is very old between Jews and Samaritans. Then it's a question that Jesus will bring great clarity to. And the answer will be this, that through the cross, true worship will be about where you go, but who you know, Jesus the Messiah. That through the cross, true worship won't be about where you go, but who you know, Jesus the Messiah. So let's read John chapter 4, verses 16 to 26. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, in the place where people ought to worship, is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, in particular being able to meditate on the person of Christ on Christmas Eve, uh, praying, Jesus, that you'd make yourself known and heard, um, that you'd give us ears to hear what you're saying, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that we might grow um, in our maturity and draw closer to you. In your name we pray, amen. So last week we actually ended in the middle of a conversation between Jesus, a Jew, and a Samaritan woman coming to a well in the middle of the day for water. This is a very unlikely meeting, one made by God's providence, that has this woman surprised as Jesus, the thirsty traveler, offering her water. What we came to learn, though, in their interaction was that the water Jesus was offering this woman was not the polar springs kind, but a living water that satisfies the deepest spiritual needs and longings that we have. We left, off, we left off in verse 15 with the woman asking, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to 
come here to draw water. As we come to verse 16, Jesus will seemingly change the direction of this conversation again. But that's, as we'll see, because our Samaritan woman still doesn't quite understand what's being offered to her. Their discussion will turn to one of the most controversial debates between Jews and Samaritans, but in it, Jesus will make his identity and purpose clear. That through the cross, true worship won't be about where you go, but who you know, Jesus, the Messiah. But let's first consider Jesus' revelation of the Samaritan woman's past. Let's look at verse 16 to 20. You cannot hide from God. How many of us played hide-and-seek growing up? Right? And when you're a kid, you think you're really good at hiding, but you're not. Right? When, if you ever play with kids now, hide-and-seek, it's so funny because they'll hide in the most obvious, plain place, but then they think they've like, found the spot. Or they find a really good spot, but then they're giggling, and they don't think you can hear them giggling from like, across the room. And so it's just obvious where they are. Right, this is the idea of us trying to hide things from God. I think another example of this is found right in the garden. Right, you remember when Adam and Eve sin, and they hear God coming in, and what do they do? They hide. They hide from God. Genesis 3.8, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to man and said, where are you? Now, if you don't know, God wasn't asking this question because he didn't know the answer to the, the question. He knew exactly where the humans he had made were. Hiding from God is like trying to hide a herd of elephants in Providence, right? It's probably not going to happen. <laughs> but whether she knows it or not, the Samaritan woman thinks she can do exactly that when Jesus calls her to bring her husband. Listen again to their interaction. Jesus says to her in verse 16, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answers him, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband, which you have said is true. Jesus' response to, request the, to the request of living water is an ask. Go get your husband and come back here. Her response is, I don't got a man. Now, Jesus' revelation about her marital status makes clear what her response is trying to do when she says, I don't have a husband. She's not trying to have a conversation about her love life. Right? How many of us, even with the closest of friends, let alone the first time meeting someone, would decide to share the messiest details of our life with them? Yet what the woman discovers is that Jesus doesn't ask questions because he doesn't know the answer to them. He goes on to inform the woman that she is right. She doesn't have a husband. In fact, she's had five whole husbands and is with a dude for whoever, whatever reason has not wifed her up. Now, I think there's good reason for her not to want to share these details. Right During this time, it would have been looked down upon to have had more than three marriages, even though it was legally permissible. Now, we want to be careful. I think we can look at this narrative um, and assume the sin of this woman. The verse doesn't say anything about her being a prostitute. This is a normal 
uh, understanding of this woman in this text. If anything, the opposite could be true, that this woman is a victim of a system where husbands could freely divorce their wives, leaving women used and helpless so that even her most recent man would not marry her. So we want to be careful about how we interact with the narrative. But we also don't want to pretend that there isn't any sin involved with the woman in her current position in life. I think this is why Jesus brings up such a seemingly random yet huge part of her life. Again, this seemingly strange and abrupt change of subject is intentional by Christ. The woman has already shown she doesn't understand who Jesus is, and even the spiritual meaning of living water being offered to her, her own need, a thirst that must be satisfied. By showing his insight into her morally messy life, he's showing a knowledge that is supernatural, and she seems to understand that much. This is done to serve her and help her see her need of the gift that Jesus is offering. That her life and perhaps even her sin is exposed, which is exactly what the water of salvation was intended to quench. Jesus isn't bringing up her messy life to shame her, but to show her her truest need. Family, when we come face to face with Jesus, his word, he exposes our sin so that we can repent of it, so that we can find life on the other side of it. This is good. It's something that we should, in fact, look for and pray for, that God would continue to expose our sin. Because it's in our helplessness to kill sin and our recognition of that that we can see the help of Christ for what it is. When our sin is exposed, Jesus is giving us an opportunity to allow the gospel to work in the infected areas of our life. He's given us his spirit, his word, and the church, all to help us in this sanctifying work of becoming more holy, more like Jesus. Perfect, without spot or blemish. This is probably one of the least appealing parts of walking as a Christian. Jesus' continual work on our sin. But if we embrace it, we will find it freeing and strengthening because sin weighs us down. It suffocates, it hurts, it threatens our relationships. Jesus, he frees us from the consequences, his ugliness, and allows us to experience the goodness and beauty of righteous living. But I hope you can see a, a God and a Christ who doesn't shy away from your mess, from your sin. Whether you are a believer or not, we already know you cannot hide from Christ. He tells us much in chapter 2 of John, right? When we read that he knew what was in man, he knows what's in us, in our hearts. He knows our evil thoughts, our deepest secrets, things that if you told even the people you love most, they would love you most, would maybe not look at you the same. And yet Jesus, knowing those things, still comes to you and invites you to join him, invites you to have hope in him, invites you to drink living water. He sees all of you and still invites you to enjoy the benefits of his presence. Now, in verse 19, it becomes clear to the Samaritan woman that Jesus is no ordinary man. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Now, the woman was probably just describing Jesus as a prophet in general, the generic kind, not the messianic kind, the savior kind. She, even being a Samaritan who didn't believe in the prophets, the, the prophetic books, did believe in the first five, the Pentateuch. So she would have known Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, which said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, among you. From your brothers it is to him you shall listen. So the Samaritans would have been waiting for a Messiah, just like the Jews. And though the woman doesn't think Jesus is him, she's become intrigued by the man of God standing before her. Look at verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Asking this kind of question is equivalent to bringing up politics and religion around Thanksgiving meal. If you wanted to stir up controversy during this time and day, this is the question you would bring up. This is what you would talk about. That's the nature of her question here. Now, many, again, assume in reading this text that the woman is, in, is desperate to take the lens off of her. Jesus just exposed her life, and she's like, ah, let's change the subject. I, I kind of want to talk about something that's not me. And maybe, maybe that's true, but I think it might be likely that after seeing Jesus reveal something that he could have had no way of knowing about her, that she's curious to raise an important problem between Jews and Samaritans. That the woman had begun to realize that Jesus is able to speak to spiritual things, but has not come yet to join his side and believing in him. And so what does she do? She raises one of the most controversial topics between Jews and Samaritans, with Samaritans rejecting Jerusalem and building their own temple. Essentially, the woman is asking Jesus, how can you raise such spiritual things when we don't even agree on a starting line? We don't even worship in the same place. And yet you want to talk about my life. Again, if you remember from last week, this is a feud that has been going on for hundreds of years between Jews and Samaritans. That when, when Israel broke to the north and to the south, northern Israel would see an influx after the exile of other peoples come and marry with their people. And so they would in some ways become an altogether different nation who would put together a semblance of Israelite religion mixed with some other things. And so they had even built their own temple on a mountain, Mount Gizurim. And so after the exile, when the southern Israelites returned home, they would not view the Samaritans kindly. They would view them again as racial half-breeds, as rebels of God. And so there would be a hate between, an animosity between these two people groups. Now, because the Jews recognized the rest, rest of the Hebrew canon, and not just the Pentateuch, they concluded that Jerusalem was the place where you worship God. There, David had determined to build a temple that you might remember Solomon, his son, eventually builds. This was the place where God would meet his people. Even after it was destroyed, it was rebuilt and still the symbol of worship for the Israelites. For their part, though, the Samaritans recognized none of that. Again, because they stuck with the Pentateuch, they noted that Abraham had built an altar on Mount Gizarim. 
that it was on Mount Gizurim that blessings were shouted to the covenant community. That the Ten Commandments were tied to this mountain. And so they saw these big events happen all around this place and deemed, well, the Pentateuch is what's true. This is where we must worship. So she presents this to Jesus. And so the question is, how will he respond? And so we'll see that Jesus shifts the conversation again. And he'll answer her question, but he's going to point to a greater reality that is to come. He'll also move the focus not so much on Jew and Samaritan, but really on a bigger problem, God and the world. So let's look at verses 21 to 24. The time is here and now. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So the woman had just asked Jesus to settle a centuries-old debate, one that played a big role in the conflict between Jew and Samaritan. But Jesus' answer would probably have come to a surprise to her, as he basically says, no, neither. More than that, he says, your question, honestly, will become irrelevant pretty soon, because worshiping the Father, worshiping God, won't happen on a mountain, and it won't even happen in Jerusalem. If you remember that word, the idea around hour, that, that phrase, the hour is coming, it's in reference to Jesus' death on the cross. And this is what you see throughout the Gospel of John, that this is pointing to Jesus' death on the cross, that his death represents a crucial moment in time and space that brings in something new, different, and powerful. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the cross, his death, Well, story time, where worshiping God won't happen on the mountains Samaritans have deemed, or Jerusalem, the center of Jewish faith. Jesus continues in verse 22. You worship what you do know, do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Though Jesus does begin with what is to come, the irrelevancy of place, when it comes to worshiping God, he does want to make clear that Jews and Samaritans are in sharp contrast as it comes to truth in worship. That salvation is found from the Jews. And what Jesus is saying here is that the object of the Samaritans' worship is actually unknown to them because they reject the rest of his word. That the Samaritans stand outside the stream of God's revelation, his speaking to his people, because they reject the rest of the Old Testament. So they can't possibly worship God in a way that is true and knowledgeable. By contrast, even if the Jewish people had become hypocritical, that their worship was laced with hypocrisy, at least it could be said that the object of their worship was known to them that the Jews stood within the stream of God's saving work, that they know the one that they're supposed to worship. The Jewish people were meant to be a vehicle of God's word and truth to the world. The word salvation here in John happens nowhere else in this book. And it does provide an ironic twist to what Jesus is saying. Salvation is from the Jews, 
and yet we know that they had not brought it to any other people. The centuries-old conflict between Jew and Samaritan shows that the Jews were acting without any concern for the salvation of the world. You remember Jonah, his, his desire to go to Nineveh? <laughs> when God says, go preach the gospel to them, he says, no, thank you. Well, that was a very normal way of thinking, a pattern with the Israelite people who embraced the I will bless you part of Genesis chapter 12, but forgot the so that you might bless, that through you the world might be blessed. As much as Jesus must embrace his Jewishness, this is part of the story of the gospel, for salvation is from the Jews, he's also correcting what it meant to be Jewish. He will show himself to be the true spiritual Jew through whom all the people on earth will be blessed. Jesus is showing himself to be the blessing given to the Jews, and it is through the Jewish Jesus that the rest of the world is blessed. We who confess this same salvation should be aware of the very same thing in our individual lives and as a church. The Jewish people had missed the point of obtaining the blessing of God. And that can be our own experience as well. That if we forget that we are saved, blessed to be a blessing and bring that same message of salvation to the world, that if our faith is active, then church, we are actively finding ways as a body and individuals to share our faith. But in Jesus' response, I, I do hope you also see the importance of clarity. When we interact with people, with ideas, belief systems, we should seek common ground. I think Jesus is doing this. That we are looking for points of connections that demonstrate commonality, but it is good and important that we show contrast. Meaning, we should be clear as to where the truth of salvation is missing. Ultimately, in every other system of belief, that key component is Christ. But there are other ways as well. And we do this because it is in the truth that life can be found. We don't love the world in the way God does in John 3.16 when we avoid the truth of the gospel. Salvation is from the Jews. With the mention of that certain hour, we find hints towards the meaning of this. That the fulfillment of this statement is seen in Jesus. Let's look at verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Uh, if you remember in the first episode of the, um, the trilogy of the Matrix, Neo was given the option of taking two pills. Which colors were they? Red and blue. Do you remember which pill did what? So if you had the blue pill, what would happen? And the red pill? Yeah. Thank you. I know Johnny's uh, fuego today. He's just on it. So the red pill would enable him to understand what was actually happening in the illusion created by the Matrix, right? But if you took the blue pill, things would go on as 
normal. He would continue to live in the illusion that had been created. As you already know, Neo takes the red pill, and with that, his eyes are opened to, as Morpheus said, and mentions in the, the movie, the slavery that he had experienced while living in the Matrix. The red pill gave him the ability to live in the truth of reality. One of the things we learn in, in the Bible is that truly worshiping God is something outside the bond, bounds of our natural ability. That we in ourselves cannot worship God truly because we are broken and sinful. We're like those in the matrix. We are slaves to something that leads us away from God. And that there is even something in us that prevents us from loving God as we should. And so we need to take our very own red pill. And last week, Jesus revealed the red pill to us. You know what it is? Living water. Yes, Enoch. Living water. It's the living water Christ provides. That if we drink that water, our eternal needs and, uh, our eternal needs and longs are satisfied. That fills up with the Holy Spirit so much that we are erupting like geysers. And with the Spirit in us, we can truly worship God in spirit and truth. And so true worship requires drinking the living water Jesus provides to receive the Spirit and find truth. Again, that phrase, the hour is coming and is now here, means that the cross is central to true worship because it is what creates true worshipers. Jesus is bringing the moment of true worship now through his death on the cross. This is the culmination of Christ's ministry that the incarnate Word through whom God chose to reveal Himself is the one who baptizes His people in the Holy Spirit because we need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God, in order to worship God. And this provision by the Holy Spirit is made possible by the work of Jesus in that hour that has come. This is how we are made into true worshipers. And so this also helps us understand what it means to actually worship Jesus in spirit, uh, Father in spirit and truth. Now these are not two separate characteristics of appropriate worship. I think we often understand it like that. What does it mean to worship God in spirit? What does it mean to worship God in truth? But this is not simply about worshiping God in our spirit, but in the spirit, who is all over the pages of the fourth gospel, who is central to the renewal that Jesus is talking about in you. This is the Spirit of God. In John chapter 14, verse 17, the Spirit will be described as the Spirit of truth. So this phrase, Spirit and truth, describes how we receive the gift of God and what happens when we drink the living water Jesus provides. This is the people, these are the people that the Father is not just seeking, I think that word kind of lightens it up. He's actually demanding these kinds of worshipers. And we're told why in verse 24. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In the Old Testament, the spirit was referenced to the creative, life-giving work of God. If you remember in John chapter 3, verse 8, that the Spirit cannot itself be, himself be fully comprehended, but its effect cannot be denied. We don't see him, but we see his power. It is known through his sound. 
In the same way, when we read God is spirit, what this means is that God is invisible. He's divine opposed to human. He's life-giving and unknowable to human beings unless he chooses to reveal himself. Worship is done in spirit and truth because God's essential nature is spirit. So true worship must be spiritual in nature. This is why true worship is found not where you go, but in who you know. Because the only true temple is Christ, is Jesus. And so this restricts worship to the nature and character of God, but it also expands it because it makes God the one true source in place of worship, meaning anyone can have access to him through Christ. Jesus is declaring to the Samaritan woman that true worship is not going to be defined by Samaritans or by Jews because the flesh can't worship God. It is only by the Spirit provided by the work of Jesus on the cross, gifted to us in love by God, that we can become true worshipers in spirit and truth. The implications of this are huge. Jerusalem will no longer be the center of faith and relationship with God. That is only found in Christ. That through Jesus' bodily death on the cross, we find the hour of transition. In his body in which the penalty for all sin is placed, we find salvation. This is assured because three days later, Jesus rose from the grave. And in his resurrected, perfected, glorified body, we find the new and true temple. He as the head and we, the church, are the body. That means the, the place of worship is not in a specific area of the world. It's not a physical temple. But we are the living temple anywhere, anytime we worship God. That the place, in one sense, is us. We are the place because we are the center of worship as Christ is in us and is also the head of the body that is the church. Even as you tease this out, understand that it means that when we gather for church on Sundays, the emphasis isn't this location. The point isn't 93 Stanwood Street, Providence, Rhode Island, 02907. That's not, that's not the emphasis when it comes to the church. No, that's not who we are in our full local meaning. Who we are is you. It's us. We are the church. So that means when you, when you don't come, a part of the church isn't here. A part of the church isn't happening because we are the body. We are the church. We are the center in which God is worshipped, exalted, and praised. We who have become true worshippers of God. But how does the woman at the well come to understand this? Let's look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus the Messiah revealed. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. As we said last week, even as early as the first five books of the Bible, the Messiah is promised. A savior for the world and the sin and brokenness in it. 
So it is unsurprising that the Samaritan woman, still confused by Jesus' words, makes mention of the promised one, who will make it all make sense one day. But Jesus' response is interesting, right? I who speak to you am he. With careful choicing of words, this is a bit strange in the way it's translated in English, but he's saying, I am he. Right? In the Greek, there would be no he. And so what you would read is, ego eimi, I am. Right? Does that sound familiar to you? Why does it sound familiar to you? Moses and the burning bush. Right? God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And he says what his name is. He says, I am. And I am has now spoken to the Samaritan woman. Jesus' response, his response is both a correction and a revelation. So much of what the Samaritan woman believes what was wrong or incomplete. She had been waiting for where and what, yet the whole time who was standing right before her. His revelation is his correction. Her messianic hope isn't wrong. Her sight is wrong. Jesus just needed to announce his presence to her. This is a powerful moment done in such an anticlimactic way that the Jewish Messiah announces his presence in Samaria to a Samaritan woman in the middle of a conversation. It's similar to the King of Kings being born in a stable. It's not done with the appropriate person or place, and yet that's kind of the point. Jesus has explicitly revealed himself as the Messiah, maybe because it doesn't carry the same political tones as it did for Jews. But what's incredible about this is who he's revealing it to. A woman who would have been viewed as second class. On top of that, she's a Samaritan, viewed as permanently unclean by Jewish teachers. This is incredible because it demonstrates that the love of God declared in John 3.16 is proof proved in Jesus' actions right here. That Jesus has truly come to reveal himself and save the world. That the value Jesus put on all of us, particularly those deemed as less than, too messy, too broken, perhaps unfixable, it is made clear who he has come for as Jesus reveals himself as the I am to this nameless Samaritan woman. That he's given her access to living water and true worship of the Father. And this is the good news of the gospel. That it really is offered to all. In particular, those of us who have not believed yet in its promises. I think this narrative really is a, a reminder of how serious we should take the claims of Jesus. Because if he really is the promised Savior of the world, if he's right, if what he's offering is true it is gloriously important that we follow up on his claims, his words. Jesus is offering us to know our Father God by the Spirit in the truest way. And this doesn't require you to go anywhere, but it does require you to go to the person, Jesus. The prophets in the Old Testament, they talk about a time when when worship would no longer be focused on a single central sanctuary, a temple. When the earth would be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
John's later writing in the book of Revelation, we've gone there often as we've walked through this gospel, it concludes with a vision. A vision of the consummated kingdom. The new Jerusalem in which there is no temple to be found. Why? Revelation 21-22. Because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. This is not fully realized yet. but We already experience this in part as we worship God personally, as families, and as we gather as the church because we've been made a people who can worship God in spirit and truth. That we declare the truth of His Word found in the Scriptures, we, who walk in the Spirit living out the commands of God, our whole lives are defined by this true worship as worship is about what is the central focus of our life. And for the Christian, that is Jesus. True worshipers have Christ at the center of her life, and this is made possible for those who've drank the living water Jesus gives, who have received the gift of God, being born from above. We are now a people who thank God with our true worship. Because through the cross, true worship isn't about where you go, but who you know, and we who've gone to Jesus have found life in his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, what you've done in this amazing conversation, this uh, pivotal conversation in John chapter uh, chapter 4, that you've allowed us to, to see that you've offered us the gift of eternal life, this free gift of grace, that we would just drink of living water and by it be transformed, that the Spirit would come into our life, that we would be made true worshipers of God. That all of us, regardless of where we've been born, regardless of what we've done in our life, the mess, the shame that we might carry, that Jesus, when you confront us, you invite us into yourself. That you invite us to drink your water, to be made new, to know the benefits of your death on the cross. Because that hour has come, we can be made something altogether different new creatures. Help us to to hope in that, to believe in that, to trust in that this Christmas season. In your name we pray. Amen.